Welcome to the Coeur Adventist Podcast. Created, produced, and directed by the members of the Coeur Seventh-day Adventist Church. To connect. To grow. To grow. To worship. To reflect Jesus. Let's discover what we can do. Together. 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 Welcome to Interviews, where we get to know individuals in our church community on a deeper level. This is a guest host edition as well. My name is Steve Hamstra, and in this episode, we'll meet another member with an extensive background in mission work overseas, having grown up in Africa. He's an anesthesiologist here in the area and has been attending Coeur Church for more than three years. He's also my father-in-law. Since we're talking Africa, we enjoyed a good pot of Redbush or Roybus tea during this interview, so you'll hear some uh, sipping and teacup clinking. And now, without further ado, let's get to know Michael Hay. Michael Hay, thanks yes, for joining us. So tell us, how did you end up in the mission field? Well, to, to say how I got there, you'd have to go one generation farther back. Okay. Dad was from Manitoba and had finished medical school, kind of rushed because of the Second World War. And he happened to be in Vancouver General Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia, doing his internship. And it happened that there was a floor nurse, a ward nurse, with red hair who caught his eye. And he started to put on the swagger, started to hustle her <laughs> or whatever. And um, her name was Trudy. So dad was Jack and she was Trudy. And they went to all the usual, think of any movies you've seen of Second World War, the, all the movies, the dining out, the dancing, the drinking, the smoking, going to go overseas, you're not sure if you're going to come back alive, all that emotional turmoil during the Second World War. And as they dated more and more, they became convinced that this was a friendship that was going places and they wanted to come to, you might say, a unified religious position. Mom came from a very staunch Catholic background. Dad was Church of Canada, Protestant denomination. And so they were going to study the Bible to try to come to a common religious position. So they were each convinced of their own rightness. From dad's perspective, there's no way he was going to marry any damn papist. From my mother's perspective, there was no way she was going to marry anybody but a good Catholic boy, because that was her uh, upbringing. Anybody but a Catholic would be a heretic and lost. So they committed to using the scriptures only as their rule of what they decided to come to in terms of a common position as they studied. Now, they were each individually free to uh, use what other sources, independent sources they want, like your, your pastor, your padre, your priest, the Vatican, whatever. But when it came to what they had agreed on to uh, base their final decision on, it would be what they could, what they felt comfortable in the scriptures. So with that in mind, 
they uh, delved into it. And the more they got into it, the more they became convinced that traditional uh, Christianity had flaws and deficiencies. And they could not find things that supported, you know, things like um, prayer to Mary, prayer to the saints, uh, purgatory, uh, eternal soul, you know, things like that. And it turns out that they had a little bit of nudging around the edges by two interns who, of course, dad got to know all the interns. Two of them he'd never heard of before going to Vancouver. And because he's from the middle part of the country and had done his medical school in Ontario. And one of these was a guy named Reuben and the other one was a guy named Gus. And in hindsight, they were both Seventh-day Adventists. They both kind of gently gave suggestions as to things they might check on, things they might look at, verses they might consider. They never pushed them in any direction. And ultimately, uh, dad and mom were convicted in their hearts to take up this religion that they'd never heard of, Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this was around 1947, maybe 46, probably 46. Um, and part of that, they got the missionary bug. They thought, you're supposed to go ye therefore and teach all nations. And they felt that meant them. And so they, you know, became affiliated with the Seventh-day Adventist denominations headquarters in Washington, D.C., and they went to Africa. And at that time, it was a seven-year term. You were committing to be away from your home, your family, for seven years. You had a break of a few months in the middle of that seven years, but basically it was a pretty serious commitment. This is not just a, let me do a little student missionary in Guam for a summer or a year. So in any case, it was while they were overseas that I was born. Mom lost two babies in the Vancouver area. One was lived two days, one day I think. The other one was stillborn. His name was John Michael, and that name was reserved for me because that baby was stillborn. My older sister was born at Malamulo Hospital in what was then called Nyasaland and is now called Malawi. Then I was born down in uh, Bechuanaland Protectorate, uh, which is now called Botswana. My little sister was born in Port Shepstone near Durban on the east coast of South Africa uh, when they were on vacation down there. And then my adopted brother was born at our mission. The, the mother had some family issues, had some other kids, felt that she couldn't do justice to this unborn baby and put it up for adoption, not knowing by her own choice, who the parents would be, having no idea that the delivering doctor and nurse would be the parents, my dad and mom. So anyhow, he's been in my family since I was seven. So anyhow, the bottom line is my mission service comes in the sense of being a mission kid born and raised there. We came back uh, for a few months at seven year point. That was when I was four or five years old went back for another five years to the same mission hospital, Kenya, in Botswana. And then we left on permanent return in 1960. And we're working with that same intern from the dad was with, Ruben Matiko, up in Victoria, B.C. 
Dad got pressure from the General Conference to go back to Africa, to Rwanda. And having spent uh, already 12 years in Africa, they really had a sense of mission commitment. And they chose to uh, give up the permanent return. And in 1962, they went back to Africa, to Rwanda. And if you remember the 1960s as well as the 1990s, that's when there was the genocide between the Hutu and the Tutsis in Rwanda. And as a 13-year-old boy, I can remember seeing bodies that have been hacked to death with machetes dumped in the river, and then they get caught, their clothes caught in the branches of the trees along the river. So it wasn't entirely a benign point in history. And so anyhow, I uh, did a little bit of schooling in Nairobi to try and get into the system because I would be joining there in January of the next year. And my folks said they didn't want to send a 13-year-old boy away to school. So I did another year of home study. I'd already done four when I was in Kenya, Botswana. So I did seventh grade uh, home study at home in Rwanda, skipped the eighth grade, and then did four years of high school at Helderberg High School, which is outside Cape Town, South Africa. And at that point, I left and came back to the United States. Uh, my sister Karen was already at Walla Walla. My other sister was at Auburn Academy. And so I just went to where my sister already was, Walla Walla. Then it goes from there on to medical school at Loma Linda, then internship and residency and work. But I'd like to comment on something um, that is, I don't know if Tony can attest to this, but one of my classmates in high school Cheryl Brown. She was the daughter of the, the college or high school pastor. Um, she got on, eventually I think got a PhD in, I don't know, counseling, sociology, something. But her area of special interest turns out to be what is called third culture. So what that means basically is that I'm a white boy. I'm from North America and I'm stuck in darkest Africa or Borneo or Amazon jungle or whatever. I don't look like I belong there. I look different. It's not my culture. So after X number of years there and being out of the American scene, my parents come back to North America or Australia or Ireland or whatever, you know, uh, a totally different culture than the third world culture I'd been in. And I look normal. I look like I fit in but I don't feel normal. I don't feel right. And I can remember at Walla Walla, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong there. Was there a, a lower level beneath the cafeteria, I think, called the SAC yep. Social right. Activity? Student Activity Center. Student Activity Center. Yep. Okay. Oh, yes. So uh, there at the SAC, we were having a Saturday night mixer, you know, vegetarians, dating. Absolutely. <laughs> Vegetarian dating. So they have this this mixer, and they had things like, uh, say, McDonald, a picture of McDonald's arches, or the circle for AT and T with the blue lines this through is a it. Quiz. Well, they had these stations. They had these color pictures okay. sta stationed around on tables, and you had a piece of paper with you know one through fifteen or something, and you've got to go around and name all these companies. And I thought, nobody knows these things. How would you know what that is? I don't have the foggiest idea what that stupid thing is. And the fact is, I was the dumbest one there. Everybody else knew what they were, but I was third culture. Mm. I had been taken from Africa 
and I'm 18 years old and I'm dumped into America and I look like I belong, but I don't. And Cheryl, she ended up marrying one of our fellow students there, another missionary, and they ended up going back to Malawi for several years, husband and wife team. Um, Cheryl Doss, Steve, mm -hmm. Steve may know of her and uh, Gordon Doss, but the bottom line is she once interviewed one of her customers, patients, the people she counseled or she did research talking about and said, well, where do you feel the most comfortable? You're the average white guy. You feel most comfortable in the U.S. or in whatever, Congo. And he says, when I'm 35,000 feet up in the air in an air jet between continents, because when he's in Africa or whatever, yeah. he feels like a fish out of water. And when he comes back over here, he feels like a fish out of water. And so the result is um, abuse of families, divorces is significantly worsened in th these people. And I think it depends on what age uh, people come back, what age they are when they try to assimilate themselves back into this new society, which is new for them, but they look like they've been there the whole time. So the bottom line is, that is a stressful thing, and I think the General Conference and probably other denominations and maybe, I don't know, maybe the government services who send people over on long-term assignments to a foreign country, I think there is greater attention to the potentially psychological impact of a developing mind stuck over somewhere. Yeah, it's kind of cultural stressors. Let's jump back. One, one thing I really wanted to, to um, uh, touch on briefly for those that are interested in, in various Adventist mission stories and want to dig deeper. There are a couple of books about your parents um, and their, their story, right? And remind me the names of those in case people want to look them up on Amazon, right? Get a, get a used yeah. edition. They are very, very long out of... Uh... Yeah, mid-century vintage... <laughs> Yeah. Story. yeah, very old. Uh, Judy steps out. Judy is a pseudonym for Trudy. And the hero in the book is Cam. That would be my dad, Jack. And the first book of the two is called Judy Steps Out, as in steps out of her very staunch Catholic roots. Mm -hmm. And um, then the sequel to that, which was written sometime later, and that Second book has got pictures of me as a munchkin. Yeah. Probably around Adair's age, I would guess. I'm not sure. <laughs> Three uh, and a half. Yeah, a little fritzer. Um, that's called Judy Goes to Africa. And so the first book has got a theological overtone talking about a lot of these struggles as they try to come to a common ground and try to be strongly rooted in the scriptures and not be, um, not be swayed by man's philosophizing if that's i'm not sure if that's the right word but you know that's the idea then the next one talked about going to africa and uh, some of the experiences over there and then there was a kind of a peripheral book not just written about dad and mom but to a large degree uh, a lady i forget her name went and did a extended trip with dad out into the Kalahari Desert and that's called Broken Arrow and it has a great deal about dad and mom in that. Okay. So uh, yeah those books but but that 
that whole story of dad and mom's conversion, it it kind of speaks to how I feel these days. I look around and I look at the majesty and the symmetry and the repetition and the predictability of the heavens. If you're smart, you can look back a thousand years, you can look ahead a thousand years, and you can say when there is a going to be a full moon or whatever. And it's because there is, it screams order, it screams design. It's not just a bunch of worms wiggling around. If you look at the human body, and I'm a physician, the human body is complex beyond comprehension. And again, it screams design. There's nothing that you can't take a pile of amino acids, a pile of silicon chips, and suddenly you get a Cray computer. It doesn't work that way. So to me, there has to be a super designing entity, whatever that entity is. So once you assume there is a God, then the next question, who or what is that God? And Scandinavians would say it's Odin. The Hindus might say it's whatever, Vashti. There, Any number of them. Yeah, right. The Baal, whatever. Or maybe, just maybe, it's Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Judeo-Christian belief. So I can't prove there's a God, but I believe there is. I can't absolutely prove it's Jehovah, but I strongly believe it is. So then the next question is, is this thing, the Bible, that calls itself the Word of God, is it in fact God's communication to mankind, history, poetry, prophecy, instruction, laws, whatever, uh, is it? And if, in fact, it is from God, then who am I to veto it and say, well, seventh day Sabbath, that's not very convenient. I'm just going to veto that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it. It's just inconvenient or some other belief. It's not convenient or most people don't agree with that. Well, most a lot of people smoke and I don't think that's a smart thing just because a lot of people do that. And I don't know that dad and mom went through those three questions like that. But in essence, when they said, you're a Catholic, I'm a Protestant, we got to come together, come hell or high water, uh, they were basically saying the same thing. And the reality is when it says Judy steps out, that book, mom was to a large degree, should I say expelled? She was basically cast out of her clan, her mm. family. Mm. All Catholics, staunch Catholics. And from their perspective, she had one foot on a banana peel and the other foot was already in hell. Mm. She was gone. So the bottom line for me then is that is how strongly one generation back from me, my parents, one generation back felt overwhelmingly committed to what they had personally studied. Now, I can't say that I personally studied with the diligence that dad and mom did. I was brought up into that spiritual religious family. Mm -hmm. And as time has gone by, I have mentally cast some serious doubts about some things about our church. To, in many ways, it is the administrative side and the administrative decisions. But I am old-fashioned enough, besides being old, 
<laughs> I am old-fashioned enough that when dad and mom were willing to basically be cast out of their families, that's how strongly they felt about the religious course they were embarking on. I feel that there has to be something very special here, and I would be ill-advised to just casually cast it off because, oh, well, somebody says this or that. So like nowadays, uh, I mean, not nowadays, this quarter, we're studying hermeneutics, mm -hmm. and we're struggling because on some subjects, there are interpretations that are quite at variance with some traditional views. And I'm not saying there's no merit in any of these other discussions, but I am old-fashioned enough that I don't jump ship casually. Uh, if my mom was willing to be cast out of her family, that's how strongly she felt. I uh, Maybe I'm lazy. I don't study hard enough. But it to me, until I am really confident that the direction I'm going is correct, uh, I'm going to I'm probably going to be a stick in the mud and hold to what I was raised with. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm not willing to hear things and study it, but that's my roots. Yeah, that meant so much to them. Mm -hmm. um, so you touched on being brought up, um, and so let's let's go to that uh, side of your life and what it was like to be brought up in Africa. You, uh, you probably heard us in this discussion already drinking our red bush tea, our oh, African yes. rooibos tea. So let's go to Africa. Tell me what it's like, uh, what was it like to be raised in, uh, in, in that environment and kind of what your everyday life was like as a kid. All right. Before I get into that, I want to comment on tea. Yes, please do. Um, I'm all ears. Yeah, I grew up with bush tea. We just called this bush tea. It's red bush tea. Roy Bush is in Afrikaans, red bush tea. Um, it's a decaffeinated drink. My We, we had it all the time. And uh, my dad and mom tell a story. My dad particularly tells a story that they were at a government function. And this is a British protectorate. And if you know anything about Britain, tea is extremely important. Right. I can remember seeing a World War II movie when somebody came into the British uh, ward or compound of the prisoner of war. They basically offered him a cup of tea, which was hot water, because they did. That's you. That's what you did. Yeah, yeah. That was the social etiquette to offer somebody tea. So my dad and mom, as I've already told you, came from a non-avenous background. They came from Canada. They drank tea, coffee, smoked, whatever, ate whatever they wanted to eat. And so here they are in Africa. And Africa is famous for having contaminated water. Well, what do you do with contaminated water? Well, you do the same thing the Catholics do when they want to make holy water. You fill the pot with tap water and boil the hell out of it. Yeah. So the, the bottom line is uh, tea's made with boiled water. And so what is safer in that setting than that? You don't have all the cans of Coke or 7-Up or whatever. you. So tea is incredibly a smart thing, plus it is the etiquette. And you're in a British country, so dad and mom are quite comfortably standing there drinking Earl Grey or whatever it mm -hmm. is that the host was offering them, being very polite, very honorable to the the host and uh, there was a uh, one of the white nurses was there a single lady and they said would you like some tea and she said 
no, I'm an Adventist, and Adventists don't drink tea. <laughs> and dad and mom are standing there yeah, doing the safe good, thing yeah. and the polite thing. And that's an example of how I think that we as people can get hung up on things that really aren't critical. Mm. Uh, what kind of a witness was that to the people who were hosting? And what does it say about dad and mom who are trying very hard to make a success of a, met of a mission that is absolutely crumbling? It was just almost mm. dead. Mm. And dad resurrected it to be a, the most important non-capital city hospital in the entire country. Right. That's what dad did. So that's what he's trying to do. So anyhow, experiences. Yeah, what was it like? Um, well, you've uh, heard about snakes, I'm sure. I have. You have? Okay. Yeah. And uh, Dad was a bit of a character. That's probably being gentle. <laughs> uh, and the, you're talking about the 1950s, and obviously ecology, conservation, all that in any part of the world was not what it is today. I'm not proud of that. It's, it's that anywhere you look bisons, the carrier pigeons, African animals, whatever. So dad, somewhere along in there, shot a 12-foot python, and he brought it back. Now, I don't know if you know much about reptiles, but reptiles, snakes, are hard to kill. Uh, I can remember catching a, a friend of mine at Walla Walla wanted to have a, a rattlesnake band to put around his hat, and he was scared to do that. So I went out and caught rattlesnakes and killed them, <laughs> had them in my dorm room in my uh, laundry sack, and in the morning, they were still so wiggling. Being a, a third, third, what was the term there? Third culture. Third culture, yeah. <laughs> uh, some people would say no culture. Yeah, uh, so the bottom line is I took that the snake out behind the dorm there at Walla Walla, and it was slithering around even though its head was crushed. It's hard to kill, mm -hmm. really hard to kill. Dad once shot the head off a cobra, and two hours later, the mouth was still opening and closing and the tongue going in and out, and the head was completely separated from the body. Mm. I mean, by all intents and purposes, that yeah. sucker should, should be, be dead. dead. Yeah. yeah, but no, it, it's still doing its thing. So anyhow, this snake uh, was dead, but it was still kind of writhing, so he brought it into the ante room of the operating room. This is the 12-foot python the 12-foot python, around sundown, and he dumps it out in the anteroom, and then he innocently asks one of the African nurses to go get him something from the operating room, some instrument or pack of something. So she goes in there, and she sees that snake wiggling, and she literally is out the window and wasn't seen for three days. Now, that's kind of a mean thing to do. But I guess over there, you know, you don't have radio. You don't have TV. This was long before Internet. You did some things that were, were kind of interesting. Uh, I remember one thing. We were out uh, pheasant hunting. And we were walking through. I remember this personally. Uh, we were walking through a harvested field. So it had the furrows and it had, whether it was kind of maize they called kaffir corn or whether it was corn ears, that whatever it was, had been harvested. And so there was a bunch of this litter yeah. in these, you know, messing up these uh, furrows. And I remember dad literally had his one foot up in the air to bring down and he suddenly realized there was a black mamba coiled in that furrow right in front of him. Mm. And if he had stepped on it, it would almost certainly have reached up and struck him in the leg. Mm. And um, 
I think that same trip, I remember the dogs that were with us were going crazy around a bush, a thorn bush. And when they looked inside, underneath, I mean, there were two great big fat puff adders, which are very, very poisonous. And they're not that long, you know, maybe four or six feet long, mm -hmm. but they're really fat, three, four inches fat in diameter. And um, so I guess some of that just rubbed off on me. I remember catching rattle uh, puff adders when I was at Helderberg in high school. <laughs> People didn't always think I was smart, but anyhow. <laughs> so what, what about the big animals? Do you have like big lion encounters and uh, elephants and, and so forth? or? Yeah. Um, well, elephants, not so much personally, because the part of Africa where we were, well, southern Botswana, southeast Botswana was uh, right on the edge of the Kalahari Desert. And when dad first went out there, he might he was navigating by compass and by stars because there weren't any roads. And he was setting up a series of dispensaries, uh, clinics out there to treat the Bushmen and the Hottentots and any Indian traders. And there would often be a herd of five, ten thousand of one kind of animal slowly grazing, moving through, and he'd have to watch that. I mean, the idea of 5,000 zebras or th yeah. 5,000 wildebeest in, in a herd, I mean, that's, yeah. that's almost like Serengeti. Um, that kind of thing. There were lions. Dad uh, shot quite a few lions, but I don't remember him ever doing it just for sport. When the natives would say there was a troublesome lion destroy threatening the people, eating their flocks, uh, this is an uh, agricultural nomadic, not a nomadic, a pastoral society where your bank account was how big your herd of mm -hmm. cattle were, scrawny cattle. Yeah. And so when lions were decimating your herd, it was not encouraged. And the government wanted dad or anybody else, the white traders, to take care of the problem lions. So I remember going out one time. Uh, and they said, well, see that lion there in, in, in the bush? And I'm looking and I can't see anything, but the grown-ups could see it. And uh, they, so dad shot a number of lions like that. Uh, I don't remember ever being threatened by it. Behind our mission, we had a big stone wall, which was maybe, I thought it was huge, but it was maybe no more than five, six feet tall. And we uh, burned wood to heat water. That's all there was. And they had collected old dry wood and they had stacked these, snarly crooked trunks up against this rock wall and we kids would go in and we'd make tunnels and caves and sneaking around in the in the the trunks there had to have been snakes in there yeah and i don't know maybe there weren't parents never chided us for doing that um another beautiful thing if you think of um Joshua tree, yeah. those big, huge boulders. Okay, mm -hmm. those big piles of huge boulders in Africa are called copies. And we would go climbing on the copies where copies were famous for having baboons. Mm -hmm. And baboons are famous for being on the menu of leopards. Mm -hmm. And so here we kids are scurrying all over. Never saw any, mm -hmm. never attacked by them. I remember one time I after school, I never read any of the classics. I never read any of the classics. I didn't believe in that. After home study, I my mother had a way of trilling like that, except very shrill, very yeah. loud. And we knew that if we heard that, we had to come home. And we were, I was obedient. So my policy was after school, grab my slingshot or later on my pellet gun, 
no shoes, just shorts, no shirt, and I would just go as far away because if I couldn't hear Mom Trill, then I didn't <laughs> have to come home. So I remember I was off in the bush by myself, this little Fritzer, maybe eight or nine years old, and I saw a whole big troop of baboons, and I remember cowering down behind some rocks to let them go by because I was afraid. I don't know if they'd have attacked me, but hmm. I was hidden. Wow. Share maybe a bit about um, if there's a mission story uh, that is more about the um, either the medical mission or the spiritual side of your guys' uh, service there. Um, you know, maybe something where you saw God at work in the um, in the community there um, through the through the service of your of your family. Wow. Till I was ten, I lived in Botswana, Botswana Land Protectorate, and so I was a little kid. And mission life was a bit on the periphery back for two and a half years in Canada and then back for five years of which five four of those years I was in at Helderberg so I was in a white school mm -hmm. in a mixed society country and so I wasn't really interchanging with that much and I wasn't at the mission up where the genocides were going on 2011 Ashley went over as a mission elective and I joined her for two weeks and I read in Botswana, yep. yes, correct. And I remember we were sitting there in church and the hospital administrator got up and was saying something about me visiting and how I used to be this little Fritzer there. And we left in 1960. So we're talking 11, 60, 51 years later. Yeah. Yeah, something like that, 51 years later. And I got up. And I asked if I could come up and say a few words. And I have no idea what I said. But then after church, some of the some of the old timers said, did you hear the gasp? The gasp? What gasp? When you when you got up there, we said it, they, we thought it's Dr. Hay reincarnated. Yeah. You look a lot like your dad. Yeah, I do. But the point is, here are these old people who have very distinct generally speaking, very affirming recollections about Dr. Jack Hay. Mm. And while I was just a kid when he was there, clearly the mission is much bigger. It is much more stable. Yes, mm. it's got government involvement because they don't want that hospital, which is pivotal for hundreds and hundreds of square miles to go down. And he had to have made a real impact. Mm. There were as an old pastor who had been there with dad and he was just so moved that we here's me as the next generation and then Ashley as the third generation two away from the Jack Hay that he knew and he still remembered him it was still important for him and I can't tell you the details of what dad and mom did but dad and mom very much loved the people. They found sometimes a lot of frustration because their work ethic was not dad's driving work ethic. But he loved the people. He loved the singing. And he really thought they were very appreciative mm -hmm. of his time there. Well, let's um, transition now out of kind of the, the Africa time of your experience. And maybe just give me a, a, a kind of a 30,000 foot overview of your post-Africa life, kind of moving uh, toward when you guys got here to Coeur d'Alene. Sure. Just give me that kind of sweep of those decades. 
Yeah, I would say that a lot of my my medical career has been basically the antithesis of Tony's. Tony had said he'd been here something like 40 years. And while on one hand, I think that is absolutely delightfully amazing. On the other hand, I really think there has been value in my varied traveling mm -hmm. uh, experience. I think they are both very valid, very, very good. Um, I did internship in Florida, residency at McGill University in Montreal and, and uh, Vanderbilt in Nashville. Then we spent uh, 18 years in Central California, Northern California, and then tried on the Midwest for a short time. Uh, our kids were getting older, uh, you know, boarding academy or boarding college was coming up. And uh, we'd spent their young years in the small town, 5,000 town in Northern California. And then we, you know, the more we looked at it, the more we saw that um, no mountains and no uh, ocean in the Midwest. So we ended up going to Charleston, South Carolina. And I've been quite a few years then and later on I was doing locum work, which is relief work. Uh, like at one place, somebody had, was on OB leave, so I worked for four months for them. Another one, they were looking for help, and I worked two and a half years at that one hospital. And many of these hospitals, they wanted me to stay full time, but I didn't want to relocate to where I was working as an, a relief anesthesiologist. So Brent, our oldest, had finished architecture and then moved to uh, celebration near Orlando, then up to the Chattanooga area. Ashley uh, went to Loma Linda, did a residency there, did a fellowship at Charleston, and during that time committed to come here with you to join a practice in Coeur d'Alene. Mm -hmm. And we tried very hard to find pr uh, work opportunity in either the Tennessee area where our son was or the Coeur d'Alene area where Ashley was going to be. And there were no jobs offered, no jobs advertised. I presented my CV to many hospitals in person in both areas. And then after Adair was born, uh, we got an offer to join part-time as a non-partner uh, at Sacred Heart Medical Center with the Providence Medical Group. And so we jumped on that and moved to Spokane Valley. And then a year and a half ago, we bought a house in Liberty Lake. So we very much came here to be with family. And then Brant, our oldest, the architect, and his wife and kids came from Tennessee and came to Liberty Lake. And then, of course, we have our middle child, Matthew, living with us. So, you know, on one hand, Tony's four decades, give or take, in one place is amazing. You know, the things he's seen, the interconnected families, it's just beautiful. But I can't think of any place that I've worked in the many places I have worked where I didn't feel like I grew. Uh, there was stuff I learned. People had, I've never trained in Harvard, but there are people come from Harvard or University of Florida or whatever, and you learn things, stuff that you might not have learned if you had just gone to one town. Obviously, Coeur d'Alene was much smaller 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So Tony went to a beautiful small town, and it's grown around him. I did the opposite, and we're here. Nice. And I got two grandchildren and a quarter in Coeur d'Alene, and two grandchildren in Post Falls, and we're happy. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. 
Well, in closing, let's let's talk about Coeur d'Alene Church and kind of the church as a whole. And uh, I know that for this podcast, we talk uh, vision for the church. And what would you say is your vision for Coeur d'Alene Church? Or what would you like to see Coeur d'Alene Church look like in, let's say, five years? Oh, I'm not sure how good an answer to that precise question I can give you. But I can say that when we moved here from uh, Charleston, we were delighted with the church family that we found. We were very disappointed in the options that we had in Charleston. Won't go into those details, but the Coeur d'Alene Church, despite whatever problems you may or may not think it has, was light years, uh, a blessing in comparison to what we felt our options were where we came from. I am absolutely delighted with the treasury called three, four generations, you know, the Hennenbergs, uh, us, you know, all sorts of people have these multiple generations all worshiping together. I think uh, a key focus that we have, which I think we should have, is nurturing and trying to minister to all those generations. And that means that we can't just have... Uh, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, you know, a hymn like that, much as I like that. We need some of the songs that appeal to the younger generation. We need to have vibrant people in the youth, the kids' Sabbath school, which I think we do. And I think of our, the adult Sabbath school where I'm in, there are a lot of diverse opinions, but yet we seem to get along. And I, I realize that people like Tony and many others who have been here for many years have seen church family um, broken apart, uh, members move away, some of them happy, some of them not. Uh, that's a perspective that I simply don't have. Mm -hmm. And I would say that if we continue to nourish the generations and let people know that despite the flaws in our church, it is a good church. By church, I don't mean just our church family, the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. I strongly believe that my parents were on the right track when they left their roots. I strongly believe that. And I'm encouraged that we, if we continue to prayerfully seek God's guidance as we try to see, are there is there wiggle room in some of our hard-held views that is more scripturally based. I've got no problem with that looking in that direction. But I think that we're, I think that this is the church, the denomination where I need to be. And I'm delighted with the church family that has accepted me, even though I was very much an outsider. Well, Michael, hey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing. And uh, we're glad to have you here with us as a, as a family, and we're glad to have you in our church. Boy, I'm glad I'm here. All right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Special thanks to Michael Hay for sharing his story and perspective with us. And thanks also to Ryan Bell for music. For more information about our church, visit cdaadventist.org.